Welcome to another episode of No Small Jobs. As always, I'm your host, Paul Newen. Thanks for joining us again. Um, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, make sure you check out our previous episodes. We've got some good ones. We've got a children's book illustrator. Um, we've got a hypnotherapist. We've got all kinds of things from season one as well as season two. Uh, and make sure you follow us as well to keep up to date and get sneak peeks of future episodes. That's at No Small Jobs Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Nice and simple across all three platforms. We also have a website, nosmalljobspod.com.au. Check us out. There are various reflections and random ramblings that I have about each episode and what it makes me think about my life. So if you want to get to know me, that's how you do it. So today, my guest is Ewan. He is an ecologist, which doesn't really summarize everything, but we'll start with that. Hey, Ewan, thanks for coming on. <laughs> thanks for having me. Cool. So how did you come about to be an ecologist? Uh, great question. Uh, I think it started pretty early. So as a little boy, I spent a lot of time running around uh, in the bush and particularly actually on the reefs down on the Mornington Peninsula. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, about an hour and a half away from here, running around exploring rock pools and the ocean and just being fascinated with nature. And fortunately, I had parents who really encouraged that um, kind of interest in nature. And I think like a lot of ecologists that I know, at some point I wanted to be a vet. Mm. And then I worked out two things. I probably wasn't going to get the grades that a vet (laughs) needed because to get into veterinary science is really hard. Mm. Um, But also, I didn't really want to have to be the person that told, you know, people in a regular, you know... um, at a regular time that their cat or their dog is probably going to die. And I find that that must be really hard. So, and then I found out that actually you could study the environment and and become like a a ecologist or a zoologist. So, yeah. And who taught you that? Like who taught you that you could be an ecologist? That, that was in high school. So, you know, like most people, I think at most schools, there's a career advice, you know, advice counselor type person. Mm -hmm. um, And they talk about all the, you know, particular passions that you might have and, and what careers exist. And yeah, I found out that you could do this thing called zoology and of course people always laugh and say oh so you work in a zoo and it's like no 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 (laughs) it's about the study of animals and the environment and so forth yep that's for me so i found that there's quite a bit of variation in terms of the quality of careers counselors someone will just stick a vtac guide in front of you and say here you figure it out and other ones will actually share your like ask you questions and, and figure it out so you obviously had a good one well, good and, and, you know, not perfect. So I do also remember being told there's not a lot of jobs in that, you know, career and you won't make very much money. And I thought, mm, oh, well, I'm going to ignore you anyway because <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm passionate about. And fortunately, I did. So so were your parents, yes, your parents encouraged you into this field, but were they themselves scientists or ecologists? Not at all. So my dad uh, was an architectural draftsman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my mum was mostly a stay-at-home mum, but did actually have um, formal training in uh, horticulture. So, but both of them had a passion for the environment as well. So, in a non-career sense, but mm-hmm. uh, no, neither of them were formally trained in that in that way. I mean, beyond sheer curiosity, is there anything else about ecology that particularly grabs your attention? No, I think it's just it's just the fascination that nature is just this wonderful thing, and there's so many things that we don't understand. And I guess I must have that scientist mind that's always asking questions you know why you know why is it so right that classic catchphrase Mm. um so you know just just constantly being in awe of you know what animals and plants and so forth do um yeah so where uh once you'd figured this out in high school where did that take you it took me a long way from melbourne actually Mm -hmm. so uh, I decided I wanted to do marine biology, like a lot of people in Melbourne do, uh, mm-hmm. and that usually means you end up going to Townsville at James Cook University, okay. um, which is probably one of the premier uh, places in the world to do marine biology. 
Uh, and so, but I quickly realized, well, I'm probably not going to be a marine biologist because one, I can't dive because I got asthma. <laughs> uh, and I'm not really that fascinated by coral and fish to the point that I want to make that my whole career. Mm. And I quickly fell in love with uh, terrestrial landscape. So that, you know, the land, right. And so in Townsville, this is an amazing place because as a, as a university student, within a couple of hours, you do have the barrier reef, but you also have rainforests, you have savannas, you have deserts, you have all these amazing environments right at your fingertips, so to speak. And, I remember even turning up to campus on the first day and there was a dingo <laughs> at the campus gate. And I thought, this is a cool place. I, I, I'm going to be here. This, this is fun. So, yeah, so it took me, you know, right up to Townsville. I didn't know a single person when I left Melbourne, went up to Townsville. So that was a whole experience in itself. But mm. I'm, I'm glad I did that. And I didn't come back for 15 years, basically. Right. So I did my undergrad there. I did my honours there. I did PhD, um, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Uh, and then find myself back here. <laughs> so uh, in, in a number of careers, well, particularly in medicines, uh, P- PhDs can often be necessary in order to get employment. Was that your goal there or was it purely just fa- interest? Yeah, it was, it was both. Uh, it's definitely also the case that in, in science now, um, it's so competitive to get jobs and particularly, you know, academic research jobs. It's really, really, really competitive. If you don't have a PhD, it's almost impossible to get one. So that was part of my motivation for wanting to do a PhD. But I also just like the idea of um, pursuing a question. And this, it's kind of hard to describe, but you really don't have any other time in your life where someone will pay you, and not very much, by the way, (laughs) but someone will pay you for three to four years to really, you know, get absorbed in a question and really, really explore that. Um, Now I just feel like I'm sort of pulled in a million directions every day Mm. um, trying to do different things. So, yeah, PhD is a pretty uh, special experience. What was your PhD on? My PhD was looking at a, a species of kangaroo that lives in northern Australia called the Antilopine wallaroo, um, which is a similar size kind of animal to the kangaroos that people might be used to seeing around Melbourne on the outskirts and so forth, but a very different species. And we really knew nothing about it. So, you know, how many were there? Where do they live? You know, what sort of things were important for their habitat? What's their conservation status? All these really kind of fundamental, important things we knew nothing about. And that's that's kind of uh, characteristic of Northern Australia in that it's a huge area uh, and there's a lot of diversity because there's typically more diversity in the tropics than there is down here, um, but not that many scientists for that area. And so there's all these things that we just don't know up there. So again, it's kind of a, a really cool place to work because everything is kind of new. Mm. Do you still have, do much research now? I do, I do do a lot of research. Uh, a lot of my research now is focused in Southern Australia because that's now where I live. Mm. Um, but I do, do still have a passion for Northern Australia and have some context and a little bit of research um, going on up there. But it's mostly focused down here now and looking at things like fire, which is obviously pretty timely given what's happened in the last few months. Mm. Um, and other things like the impact of uh, feral animals, so feral cats, uh, also introduce foxes on our wildlife, which has had a really devastating effect on our native wildlife. Mm. Uh, and a, a lot of sort of conservation-focused work. Tell, can you tell us a bit more about the fires research that you're doing? Yeah, so we're, we're really looking at how fire changes habitat. So as an example, we, we now know that when fires burn an environment, that can actually make it worse for native wildlife because it becomes more open and things like feral cats and foxes can find native wildlife more easily and hunt them and kill them. And mm. so, so that's a real issue. Um, but we also, of course, know too now that you know, different species need different types of requirements and 
you know, some species actually like areas that have been recently burned. Some species like areas that are, uh, have been a long time since they've been burnt in terms of the habitat structure. Mm. And so that's really challenging if you're a manager of a national park or something and you're trying to accommodate all those needs of those different species. I mean, it's a bit like people, right? Like, you know, yeah. each person has a different need and a want and so forth and trying to satisfy everybody can be difficult. Mm. Um, it's, no, it's no different with species. Okay, because I remember very uh, when I was in high school learning about the effect of fires on on um, on nature. But I w- was always, I, I mean, I distinctly remember that fire can be part of the natural cycle as well. Is that is that still true, or was that n- now it's, changed? It, it's absolutely part of the natural cycle, and in fact, some species actually need fire. So a lot of our uh, plants have evolved to require fire for germination. So a fire goes through, and their seed capsules open up, and they release their seed, and then they grow in that sort of um, recently burnt area, which is often really rich in nutrients because of the ash. Mm-hmm. But what is uh, really problematic now is that link with climate change, we're having increasing temperatures, extended drought and so forth. And what we're tending to see now is is um, more extreme fires, mm. larger fires, and also fires more regular. So even species that were previously quite resilient to fire and even needed it are being adversely affected. And so there's a tree species that is not far from Melbourne called the alpine ash, and it needs fire to germinate, right? So, But if you have a fire, um, a second fire, too quickly within the space of about 10 years all the young trees that have sprouted up from seed they all die and that's what's been happening in in quite large areas so with climate change and all the other of course changes we've seen fire is also another one that's being really kind of um i guess uh, intensified and becoming more severe so it's it's a real problem for plants and animals okay and so obviously you mentioned climate change you mentioned that a lot of your work is also geared towards conservation tell us more about that yeah, I, I, again, I think um, during my undergrad and my honours year, you know, my honours was very academic. It was sort of looking at, you know, the behavioural ecology of a species. And it was interesting that I just like, oh, but what what relevance does this have to the real world? And I guess as someone who loves the environment, is, is pretty observant about what's going on, you know, we're in the midst of what we call an extinction crisis. So we've had, you know, in the past, we've had big extinction events, including, of course, when the dinosaurs were all wiped out. Mm-hmm. And we're now in what we consider to be the sixth mass extinction. So that's where we see extinction rates well above what we consider normal. And the way we determine what normal is, we look at the fossil record and say, okay, well, on average, how long does a species, how long is it around for? And it might mm-hmm. be a couple of million years or so. Um, and how many species do we expect to go extinct by looking in the fossil record to see what comes and goes? And we're well above that. So hundreds to thousands of times above what you'd expect as being normal. And so I guess for me, um, you know, and also as a dad of two kids, I want them to have sort of the, the access to the wonderful environment that I love and know. Mm. Um, and so I've really made it, I guess, my life's passion to pursue uh, conservation-focused work. So using science... Uh, to try and inform better management of things like fire or invasive species like feral cats and foxes. How can we manage these things better so that we can conserve our native plants and animals? So uh, how, do, how does the research that you do have... How do you feel it has an impact on society at large? Or do you use that to inform policy? How, how do you intend to use your information? Yeah, that's a great question. So I do a range of things. I spend a lot of time communicating my science. So I'm really passionate about science communication as well. So I spend a lot of time on Twitter and Facebook talking about my work. I have my own blog as well that has my work out there. Some people might know about a site called The Conversation, which is a, um, a basically... A, um, a, a kind of almost like a blog um, set up where academics only write about their work and I, I write quite um, regularly about that. 
I do um, speak with, um, you know, people in policy, in government. Uh, I'm on committees um, that are helping to inform the ministers about what to do with the environment. So I really make sure that my science doesn't just stay in a journal um, or within the ivory tower, so to speak, because, mm. you know, as, as wonderful as science is, if it's, it's not actually shared with people, it's, it's pretty useless because most, most papers are actually never read mm. and very few are cited. Um, and so if it's not being used, like you just asked, then yeah, why, why are we doing this? So yeah, I do spend a lot of my time actively going out and talking with the public and the people most affected by my work, um, to try and actually make sure that's of use. How, how does that feel? Cause I, uh, not, not that this is directly related to your work, but I feel sometimes you, you watch, um, current politics, whether you look at Australian or international <laughs> politics, and there are people out there who are experts and people who understand the system. They're, they're putting this message out there that seems pretty reasonable, but when people don't listen, I can I can imagine they'll be very frustrating. Are you experiencing that at all? It's deeply frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, I mean, I think I'm not a climate scientist and I can't imagine how they must feel. Mm. But in terms of what's happening with the environment, you know, similarly, we've been warning about these things for decades and we're just not acting fast enough to address the underlying causes of what's going on. And so it is frustrating, but I think what it really emphasises is, is a few things that, we still have probably failed to connect with people enough um, and maybe communicate our work in a way that um, people uh, um, don't feel threatened and don't feel like they're being sort of, you know, lectured to and so forth. So I think there's a lot to understand about people's psychology, people's motivations and values. And so as a, you know, as a scientist and as an environmental type scientist, we're taught very well how to do research. Mm. We're not taught very well how to work with people. True. And every single conservation issue is about people, mm. everything. <laughs> so, so I think there's a lot more work, work to be done there. But I think also, I mean, yes, it is frustrating, but what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is to do nothing and go, it's all too hard and mm. then just go home and eat chocolate and drink beer and so <laughs> forth, right? And just forget forget about all the horrid things going on. Yeah. Um, but again, again, like, you know, and ever more so, I think, as, as being a dad, like I'm really driven to try and do my best, um, whatever that is, um, mm. to make things better. Do you have a strategy or approach when you're thinking about how to communicate your message? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, it, it's really kind of um, multifaceted, you know. So one is obviously to target the people most affected by that. So as an example, if I'm working on, you know, uh, foxes and the impact of them on wildlife and we're working in the Grampians National Park, which is, uh, you know, uh, west of Melbourne, um, I make sure that I directly share that work with the people working in that region. Mm. But then I also do make sure I share it with the general public at large because I think you need to have everyday people understanding what's happening and they themselves may then motivate for change mm. as well as the people who are closest to the issue. So that's really, again, where social media has become so powerful for that. So, you know, I'm old enough to remember um, pre-email and, and pre-social media, right? And it was mm. you had to pick up the phone or write letters and it just took forever mm. to get anything out to people. But now with social media, I mean, I, I literally have conversations with um, farmers in the middle of outback Queensland about how dingoes could be managed better, both for the benefit of the dingoes themselves, but also for their livestock. And, mm. you know, these people, some of them live 200 kilometers from the nearest town. There's no way I can meet them face to face, but mm. we can tap in and have conversations now, which is just fantastic. So, Are there any other uh, things you've achieved in your career that you're particularly proud of? 
Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think the thing that I'm most proud of, to be honest, is the wonderful uh, honours students and PhD students that I work with and also the undergraduate students that I teach. So the thing that I enjoy most about my job is is lighting the spark and the fire in people about the environment and how special it is and, and how we can we can help, you know, take care of this. And then seeing them go on to do wonderful things themselves, that's probably the most inspiring thing and the thing that I feel proudest of so far. Uh, tell me a bit more about the PhD process, because I've never had to experience that myself, but everything I hear about it, it it's quite uh, arduous and, and, and money-driven as well, but I, obviously I could be wrong. Yeah, look, it's, 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 there's no question about it that it's hard. <laughs> so yeah. I remember actually talking to a colleague once, and he explained it like this, that if you're on the other side of the road and you know graduation ceremonies on the other side and you're about to cross the road and someone says, here's $200,000 um, and, you know, um, I'll get your PhD um, certificate instead of you, you'd be like, no, nah, it's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's really, really hard work. Uh, but it is also really rewarding. Um, you know, you do have that huge sense of achievement. And I think, yeah, look, there is there is challenges about um, how many PhD students are, you know, graduating versus how many jobs. Um, and it's very true that, you know, as a PhD student, you're not paid very much. So it's kind of in the high $20,000 mark. So, you know, you're pretty close to the poverty line, mm. um, particularly in places like Melbourne and Sydney, um, which have really high, obviously, living expenses now. Mm. So, uh, yeah, that, that's really, really hard. But I think the other thing that a lot of people don't appreciate about a PhD is it, it's not that piece of paper and it's not that topic that you know lots about. You learn incredible skills um, that are directly transferable to so many um, different uh, careers. And so, you know, if you're a PhD student that's graduated, uh, there's a fair chance your writing skills are very well developed. Mm-hmm. Your statistical skills are very well developed. Your critical thinking and analytical type skills and all of those things are highly sought after by employers. And so, you know, problem solving, all those things, most of your PhD graduates will have those in spades. And so, there's lots of reasons for doing a PhD, but you, yeah, you certainly shouldn't launch into it without really knowing why you're doing it. And, and you definitely need to be passionate about it because, yeah, there's times where it's really, really hard. So what kind of careers can you can you uh, get with a degree in ecology or obviously post-PhD as well? Lots of different degrees, uh, sorry, uh, careers uh, and jobs. Um, so uh, obviously research is just one path mm-hmm. um, and that's a very small path really when you think about, you know, how few academic jobs there are versus how many PhD graduates there are. But, you know, working for government as an example, so you might work for Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, which is the government agency in Victoria, mm-hmm. Parks Victoria, you might work for an environmental consultancy. You might work for a conservation non-government organisation, so like an Australian Wildlife Conservancy, Bush Heritage, BirdLife Australia, uh, you know, local councils. There's a huge number of jobs in environmental areas and even things like tourism, you know, there's people who have got quite high levels of training, you know, that are, that are employed um, by, by companies because they want to have the experts talking to people, you know, doing tours and so forth. So... There's a huge range of jobs, yeah. And I understand your career is also taking you overseas as well? It has taken me overseas, yeah. And that's, again, what I think one of the wonderful things about being an ecologist is that you get to be in nature and, and also often in areas where other people may never go to. So, um, you know, I've been to Romania recently um, and seen bears in the wild with a colleague of mine and, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it's, it's, it's pretty special and I've... Uh, India, um, but even within Australia, I've been to places that, uh, you know, the average person won't go to, including on private property. So when I was doing my PhD research, 
I worked on a lot of uh, large cattle stations or properties. Mm. Um, so it's private property. And some of the country that I saw on those properties was absolutely stunning and equal with any national park mm. that I've been to. But most people would never see that because they haven't got access. So it does take you to places that, yeah, you know, many people don't go to. And so you do feel pretty lucky. Mm. I'm, I'm really fixated on the bears in Romania. Why are we <laughs> looking at bears in Romania? Yeah, so Romania is this really fascinating place because it has huge areas of forest remaining. So the Carpathian Mountains. Uh, and so it has really healthy populations of bears. In fact, the largest bear population in Europe that's remaining. It has wolves. It has lynx, which is a large species of cat lots of other wildlife um, and it still has traditional landscapes so people that are living you know amongst these large predators um, and shepherding their livestock and so forth so in a way basically managing the land that many other places used to in the past but no longer do and that has kind of meant that um, you know they have managed to conserve a lot of their wildlife and so I was really kind of keen to see that, you know, to contrast that with places like Australia and America and so forth, which has been much more heavily modified. Mm. Um, and our response to predators is largely fence them out, kill them, shoot them, all that kind of stuff because they kill livestock mm -hmm. rather than trying to think, well, how can we actually live with them um, and manage both of those things? And what did you learn? What Did you learn anything about specifically about bears and how they manage things? Well, I think what I was really struck by was the tolerance that people had for them, you know. So, you know, even within some of these really small villages where bears were coming in and creating a bit of havoc, you know. So, you know, turning over bins, going into restaurants, literally into restaurants. So, we, <laughs> you know, we saw this photo of like a, a mother and all her cubs had somehow got inside the restaurant and were putting their paw prints all over the windows and, <laughs> you know, really running amok and... Um, you know, and obviously, you know, bears are potentially dangerous as well, quite large animals. And But people were kind of joking about it in one sense. Obviously, they were frustrated as well, but sure. they were tolerant. And I think that really just emphasized to me that, you know, these people have been living with these animals, you know, for a long, long time. Whereas, you know, in Australia, I think it's a very different situation because, you know, roughly 230 years ago when Europeans arrived, um, they don't have that long association with, for some of our wildlife and treated in a very different way. Mm. Um, so that's something I'm really fascinated about, how the culture of people also affects interactions with wildlife um, and how that differs around the world. What about India? Did you learn similar lessons there as well? India is a whole different story again because uh, obviously the population of that place is just incredible. So mm. the, the, the density of people uh, and also the number of you know feral dogs I saw was quite remarkable and confronting so really different issues but again even in the agricultural area that we went to um to have a look at some of the research that you know one of my colleagues was doing you know even uh, amongst a pretty heavily modified area in that case they still had a whole range of different predator species so an indian fox you know hyena um jungle cats um jackals so all these kind of cool predators uh from an ecologist perspective mm. were still making a living in amongst this environment and and i think that's an important message that yes we have modified earth to an incredible degree and yes many species have unfortunately become extinct or at least have suffered pretty substantial declines because of that but there are also species that have adap adapted to our changes and are doing quite well and so really what that highlights is if we can understand more about what is adversely affecting species and how we could potentially um, do less harm and, and, and help species that are living amongst us, you know, that can only be a good thing. In what way? Well, in terms of making sure there's no more extinctions, mm. right? So even in big cities like Melbourne, you know, people would be kind of um, 
uh, I guess, shocked probably that there's a whole bunch of wildlife that lives with us that we don't really see. So, you know, powerful owls, which are these beautiful big owls, you know, you know, really large kind of, you know, um, I'm trying to think how big it would be, like 40, 50 centimetres or something. You know, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a big owl and, you know, they eat possums um, uh, and they're cruising around through, you know, parts of Melbourne at night time and most people won't see them. Uh, fruit bats, of course, which are really mm-hmm. important for pollinating our forests and people don't realise and people get upset about fruit bats sometimes, but, you know, they're a really important part of the ecosystem. Uh, the growling grass frog, you know, we have all these wonderful animals that are actually living in melbourne the southern brown bandicoot is one that i'm really fond of and a phd student sarah mcclagan she did her research on them and near cranbourne which is southeast of melbourne uh wonderful little marsupials um you know a bit smaller than a rabbit that are making a living you know in, a, in amongst a pretty urbanized area mm. um, and they're really important because they spend a lot of their time digging and spreading around fungi and that fungi is actually really important for plants so plants and fungi have sort of an interaction which is beneficial to both of them mm. and so it kind of again shows you that yeah it's not the case that cities are devoid of wildlife and that you have to sort of drive out of the cities to find nature experiences we actually have plenty of nature experiences in melbourne if people are aware of them mm. yeah we were talking a bit earlier about climate change and, and conservation. I mean, for, while, yes, you, you know, climate scientists, from an ecologist's point of view, what do you think is important for the general public to be aware of in terms of climate change? Yeah, I think what I always emphasise is we need to act at, at an individual level. So we need to think about our own lifestyle choices. So, you know, some of the biggest drivers that we know of of climate change, of course, are use of fossil fuels. So if we drive around in our cars a lot, we fly lots, that's obviously not great for the environment. You know, how much meat we eat definitely has an impact because meat is a huge um, producer of, of um, greenhouse gases so methane and carbon and you know carbon dioxide and so forth and so we can change our diets um, which would really really help um, and of course we also need um, uh, people to think about fashion so fashion's a really interesting one you know so fast fashion is you know it's, it's a thing um, it turns out to be one of the worst in terms of emissions you know, in, a, in the world in terms of impacts and so you know if people just bought clothes less <laughs> Um, and, you know, uh, wore clothes for longer, that would be great. So I've still got T-shirts from, you know, 20 years ago that I wear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, so we can buy new clothes, but maybe just don't buy them quite as regularly or chuck them in the bin after a few uses, right? But but we do obviously, of course, also need, um, you know, governments to act on climate change. I mean, that's just indisputable. The climate, the science is there. And, you know, we need to move away from using fossil fuels and invest in renewable energies like, you know, solar and wind and so forth. Mm. Um, And... It's often pitted as, oh, well, it's jobs versus the environment, uh, but it's just not the case at all. So, actually, it's a huge opportunity. So, we could actually transition to a more sustainable um, energy source and that would actually create jobs. Mm. Um, so, I think that would be something that would be great if we could see more of that. Um, but if we don't do those things, um, then unfortunately, the predictions are, which have been largely correct so far, of course, that mm. it's going to get hotter. We're going to see more extreme events. We're going to see more of these horrible fires. And so, yeah, we really hope... <laughs> that governments do actually do what's required because, yeah, I mean, time is running out. That's it's, it's, There's no escaping that. I think one of the things I, I encounter a lot, um, both in my work as well as just you know, from being somewhat aware of, the, of society at large, is that change is a really big deal for people. Uh, if change is um, <laughs> inconvenient, let's yeah. say, or, yeah. uh, or if, they, if they can't see the tangible results of what change will be, it, it, it's a big struggle to convince people to make a difference. And I, I guess I'd 
I don't know how you necessarily overcome that through your work. Not to say that your work isn't valuable, but I mean, have you thought about what you need to do to get that change going? No, spot on. And I mean, that applies to any environmental issue, even if it's not climate related, that, you know, uh, it's all very well good to have the information, but if you don't understand um, people's own motivations and values and why they're making the decisions they, they make, and bear in mind that it's been shown time and time again that humans are not rational thinkers. Mm, yes. <laughs> Um, so you really need to then do a lot of um, social science, uh, psychological and so forth work, um, working with conservation people. And there's more and more of that happening, that interdisciplinary work mm. to try and really get to the bottom of people's motivations uh, and educate and explain things in a way that's not sort of um, confrontational and adversarial. So, you know, there's been a lot of in the past, I think, thou shalt do this, thou shalt do that. Mm. You're a bad person if you do this. You're a bad person if you do that. And that's really not helpful. So we do need, um, you know, to understand people's motivations and explain things in a, in a better way to obviously motivate for those changes. But we also, of course, need incentives. Mm. I mean, you know, there's still things that are bad for the environment that are cheap to do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you change taxation systems or you provided people more incentives, you know, you know, obviously solar power is a good example of that. You know, there's been incentives to put solar panels on your roof, right? Mm. You know, so more of those type incentives would obviously help as well. Um, and there's huge subsidies, it's a fact, for fossil fuels, right? So if you took some of that, su- that money away that was subsidizing that and you invested that in other areas that were more environmentally friendly, then presumably you'd also see large gains. So... There's a whole range of things we need to do um, to get at your yeah your question about how do you get people to change. And obviously, education is fundamental. So starting young, starting with children. Um, so I'm a firm believer that the, the most important people in the world are teachers. Mm. Um, and they're also probably, I would argue, the most undervalued people, uh, particularly in places like Australia. You know, Scandinavia, I think they're paid better and probably more respected more. Mm. But they're crucial, right? Because Absolutely. Um, that's where it starts and it's very hard at, a, at once someone's already established kind of their way of thinking and their values as an adult to then say, oh, but actually you need to do this. Mm. <laughs> you need to care for this, so, right? So start early. <laughs> one of the um, one of my friends uh, told me that she joined Twitter for the sole reason that it was um, easily digestible news. Yeah. And that was a really interesting um, insight into into sort of behavioral psychology because the problem is, this is, this is my theory, right? The problem is, is that if we go back to, say, um, the culture of obviously the 19, probably 20s, 30s, 40s, and obviously well before then, it was very much, um, the culture was very much about a collective thinking. So everyone theoretically on the surface of it agreed that this is the way we behave. And so it was much easier to enforce laws because that's what society did. It was still very peer pressure kind of based. Mm. Um, obviously, yes, there were underground movements and minority people being oppressed. So the system itself didn't work. But, you know, you hear people of a certain generation complain, oh, things were much simpler back in the day. And I actually think they were right because when they weren't in a situation of crisis or when they weren't in a situation where they were being oppressed, it's easy because they just kind of assumed that everyone knew the same thing and everyone thought the same way. But what's happening now is um, the globalization of information. It's no longer just, you know, we, everyone knows the one thing. Now there's so much information to process. And I actually don't think we as as humanity are actually capable of processing at all, which then leads us to emotional reactions, leads to do things based off our, what we might describe as instincts, but it could be fear-based. It could be um, attachment-based. Like it could be all these kind of emotions that while human emotions are, 
are valid. They don't, as you said, they don't always lead to rational thinking. And so it's, you know, I I find the the art of communication and education really quite important. And I think people undervalue it a lot because uh, I know certainly within... um, and in the medical industry, there is this really terrible assumption that if you are an expert in your field, you're automatically a good teacher because you have the knowledge, <laughs> therefore you, you can pass it on. But yeah. that, does, that doesn't work. The art of education is really quite unique and it's, yeah. it's quite a skill that is not inherent to everyone. Some people are natural at it, fine. But it's not something that you can expect that everyone who just happens to have the knowledge should be capable of communicating. So it is, it, you know, it, it is quite interesting talking about that so how do we i guess how do we incorporate that how do we get people who have the knowledge to get them to actually get it out there in a way that makes sense to people yeah i could not agree more (laughs) so i've had lecturers when i was an undergraduate who were terrible great researchers awful teachers Mm. um so i think there's a whole range of different things we need i think in terms of universities we also need to change the reward structures so you know, for teaching and research academics, yes, you know, teaching is valued, but often for researchers, really what it comes down to is, you know, how many grants have you got? How many papers have you published? You know, Mm. how many citations? You don't get much explicit recognition for how frequently have you talked about your work in public? Mm. You know, how how many media pickups have you got of your stories? Like how much time have you spent doing that? There's very little explicit um, consideration or support for that. So until that changes, of course, people probably aren't going to be motivated very much to do it because they're like, well, hang on, I'm not actually getting any credit for this in terms of my job and my time. Um, and going back to your point about social media, it's true. Like it's it's an overload. There's never been more information in the world. It's crazy, right? And it's really hard to navigate that. And it, there's also a few other problems because um you know where people are getting uh, sort of forming camps so you know Mm. in little echo chambers where you know one group yells at the other and people have these instant reactions to things all the time Mm. um rather than sitting down and you know carefully thinking about issues and and having a you know conversation like you would with a person face to face Mm. um now there's huge power for social media to get messages out like never before and to people who you could never reach before Mm. um you know both culturally you know socioeconomic backgrounds all those things which again were really hard in the past because they were sort of you know segregated a lot more so that that's a positive but also fake news and misinformation i mean Social media is awash with that. So I could not agree more that what we need to, you know, circumvent all that is really good communicators and and people, scientists and experts and whoever they might be in their chosen field to be trained. And, you know, my wife, she teaches um, science communication for that very reason, you know, so she had the realisation that it's all very well, well and good being a good scientist, but if you can't communicate it, in large part, you're pretty useless because Mm. you're not actually sharing the information with the large number of people you potentially could and having the impact you potentially could. So that's why personally speaking for me, although yes, I do do teaching and I do research, I do invest a lot of time in in communication. I've spent a lot of time getting better at it. And I also train my students to do it. So an undergraduate level now, I embed in my units, um, you know, how, how to communicate work. So I get them to read a scientific paper as an example, and then I get them to summarize that into a tweet Mm. Um, as a practice so mm. they can start thinking well you can share scientific information in a way that's accessible right so people who are non-experts um, the story is still the same the message is still the same but you just get rid of all the jargon mm. uh, and make it accessible so yeah really focusing on good communicators and valuing those people and supporting them to do that yeah it's never been more important 
So tell us, tell us a bit more about the conversation. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people who already use it now, but I'm not familiar with it myself. Yeah. So this conversation is this wonderful thing. Basically, it's it's a little bit similar to you know logging online to a, a, a you know a media outlet. The big difference is every single article is written by an academic in their chosen field, and it covers a full spectrum of you know arts, economics, politics, the environment, you name it. Uh, and they're typically sort of 800 to 1,000 words. Um, and it's um, not for profit. So it's all funded by universities and so forth. There's no advertising. So there's no external influence, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, of course, we've got huge problems with in other areas in the media. Indeed. Um, and so that's great. And then those articles are written in conjunction with trained journalists. So mm. as a scientist, you write your piece and the whole idea is to write it in a way that's really accessible to anyone on the street who might be interested in the particular topic. Um, you can basically get um, a, a daily uh, digest sent to you via email, mm. um, which is fantastic. So I, you know, that's one of my main ways of getting news now because I can be relatively confident that when I'm, when I'm reading one of those articles, it's, it's, you know, as close to the truth, whatever the truth is, as, mm. as, as I'm going to get as opposed to reading some other, you know, <laughs> media, which is often very far from the truth. And so mm. it's, it's a really powerful thing. And it's, it now has millions of um, people who are using it, both in Australia as well as overseas. And they've got offices not just in Australia, but in the US, in Africa, in Asia, all sorts of places. Um, so it's really taken off. And I think really what that emphasized and maybe goes a bit back to your point was there is an appetite for, you know, reliable information from experts, but communicated in a way that's accessible and, you know, effective. So it's it's a wonderful thing. And yeah, it's, it's great that it exists. Where do you see your career going in the future? Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. I'm not, don't know. If I've got a particularly good answer for it because I'm not one of those people who plans too far ahead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Fair uh, some people plan five, ten years ahead. Um, I really just don't do that. So I tend to be one of these people who gets fascinated by things all the time. Maybe too much. Like, <laughs> oh wow, that's really cool. Let's do this, and that's really cool. Let's do that. Um, so I, I guess really. Um, I, if there's been one change throughout my career so far, it's, it's that I've, I've sort of moved from, I guess, small scale studies on species and their ecology and so forth to sort of bigger questions about, you know, um, how to conserve the environment. I've done a little bit of t- uh, work with some colleagues about food systems and things like that. So bigger picture stuff. So I guess as I mature as a researcher, I'm asking myself, yeah, but how can we solve the bigger problems uh, that will then take care of the small things that we're still interested in and still care about? Um, so, and of course, having an impact as well on um, policy and things like that. I think if I had another life, I probably would go into politics, mm. but uh, um, I wouldn't want to compromise my family life right now <laughs> by doing that. But if I had another life, I probably would potentially do that because I am really passionate about um, seeing change in environment. And I'm pretty um, concerned about social justice and environmental issues and so forth. So, uh, yeah, I'll, and I enjoy a good... Um, respectful argument. So mm-hmm. I think I'd be well suited to that, but not this life. <laughs> well, I mean, what's to say that in the future something couldn't happen? Have you ever, have yeah. you ever given it serious consideration? I have. Um, I, I guess I just think, you know, at, yeah, at what point, and I don't want to be sort of one of those, you know, people that comes into politics at, you know, age of 60 and, and then is sort of banging on to people and really it's like I think probably younger people should be running the show at that point and <laughs> <laughs> I have become less relevant. So I think... Yeah, if it was if it was going to be um, happening, it did have to be pretty soon. But I, I can't see me giving up my love of the environment and doing research. And 
I mean, universities and academic communities are pretty amazing places to be a part of because you're surrounded by, you know, really clever people, um, really nice people who are trying in general to make the world a better place using, you know, science and their expertise. And so I can't think of many more inspiring places to be a part of and I feel pretty lucky to be, you know, one of those people. And I think in this day and age, the impact of the impact of a politician, I think, is probably a lot less than it used to be. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, with with the gradual erosion and the trust of, of yeah. authority figures, yeah. you could still have the kind of impact you're looking for without necessarily being in the policy room um, and just kind of focusing on the people. Because, I mean, ultimately, I think ultimately, as much as politicians are um, have their own agendas and they have their own goals and whatever secret conspiracies you want to talk about... Um, they're still trying to respond to the people. And if the people aren't willing to change, if there's not a big move for change, um, then they're not necessarily going to respond to that because they want to stay in power. And so the way to stay in power yeah. is to go with the popular vote. And if the popular vote, until the, the the population, the general population by majority agree on one action or one movement, um, unfortunately, sometimes positive or negative, Brexit, yeah. um, you know, so <laughs> you can, uh, you know, it, it, things don't happen. So it's not, it's not to say that you couldn't necessarily have that impact now or yeah. in the future. No, absolutely. And it's funny you say that because Stan Grant, I think, was asked that exact question on Q&A the other night about, you know, you're really... Um, eloquent speaker he's highly intelligent you know he'd make a great politician and i think both major parties have approached him to do exactly that and he mm-hmm. said no i think i can have more impact outside of parliament so so i think you're right and i think again and with things like social media and so forth if you have a big enough following and, and you're putting yourself out there a lot and you're you know putting out messages based on evidence and so forth you can still have a lot of impact and without the constraints of having to toe a party line and all those other things that you know, people probably do have the best of intentions and then they get stuck in the political cycle and they have to do deals and they have to do that and they have to compromise on things all the time. Mm. That's really hard. So, yeah. Um, while you may not know where your career is going, do you have any things that you want to achieve? Any particular aspirations? Uh, look, I think, you know, some of them are pretty basic. I think, you know, if I can do my best as a teacher and, and, and see my uh, students that I work with, you know, research students succeed, then that'll that'll make me pretty happy. And mm. I think... At, at a much larger level, and this is a huge task, but, you know, it's that um, age-old saying and cliche, right, that if I can leave, you know, the earth and the environment better than when I found it, then mm. I'll be a happy man. And then that's getting a lot harder to do right now, mm. given what's happening. But um, really, that will be my measure of success because, you know, <laughs> when they do... Um, finally put me under, you know, Mm. they're not going to be saying, you know, you and published this many papers and had this many citations. That's not what people are going to remember. People remember sort of the legacy that you left in terms of inspiring others and and really um, helping to motivate for change and things like that. So, yeah, it's really hard to sort of summarise that succinctly. Um, Mm. But I think, yeah, if I can have made a difference in a a small way um, towards the conservation of species and environments and inspired others to do so, then I'll be a happy man. I mean, going back a little bit to the politician thing, what you say you said, in a different life you would have done it, what would have had to change? Well, I just think, and this is regrettable, I think, and there are exceptions, but it just seems like the way politics in Australia is structured, it's so adversarial, uh, and also the way people have to compromise their family life you you see that they're away all the time um you know i'm just not willing to do that i'm just Mm -hmm. not willing to you know not be home a lot of the time and you know i I really love my family and i love spending time with my family and and so 
I just can't see how those two things are compatible. Mm. Um, and, you know, I take my hat off to people like Larissa Waters who apparently managed to do that. Um, Jacinda Ardern obviously seems to be a pretty good example too and mm. I don't know what their secrets are. Maybe they've just got an incredibly great support network behind them. Yeah. Uh, but it seems like most of the time it, it's pretty hard to maintain any sort, any sort of sort of normal life mm. while being a politician. And But I think more so the system. It just seems like, you know, I... <laughs> Um, for better or worse, I don't suffer fools very well and I tend to tell the truth pretty much all the time uh, and I would not be prepared to compromise my principles, which probably means I'd last about five minutes in politics because, you know, someone would probably just say, okay, you're not going to do deals, <laughs> see you later. Which, which so. internal, within, with internal party politics, that certainly would be true. But if we look at the climate of politicians now, particularly the bigger names, you've got mm. your Trumps, your Borises, yeah. Yeah. these people are big personalities yeah. with little intelligence behind it. So, <laughs> So I don't I don't know like I I would have agreed with you maybe ten years ago that yeah. being having a compromise was really important but this day and age I think we're really hitting a um uh, I guess a stream of personality I think mm, personality yeah. makes such a yeah. difference and I I think that again in an age of information overload there is a greater appreciation amongst the, the general public for truth tellers yeah. for people who just yeah. who say it like it is and who who are, yeah. have conviction yeah. um. And unfortunately, yes, the people who are currently in power have the conviction without the knowledge. But if you can add in the knowledge, then you'd hope that you can kind of get past that. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I think you're right. I guess what I struggle with is why don't we have more people uh, of that same mold, but who are not having the same crazy policies that the, you know, the Bolsonaro's and the Trump's and the Boris's and so forth have, why don't we have more Jacinda Ardern's? Like, why don't we have more of those? Mm. Maybe we will soon. Um, And if we do, I welcome that. (laughs) Yeah. One of the, one of the interesting things I also noticed about your comparisons are the two people you cited were both women. Um, Because I think, I I don't know if you've ever read a book called The Wife Drought by Annabelle Crabb. I know of it, but I haven't read it, regrettably. It's it's well worth a read. And there's a follow-up essay, a quarterly essay called men at work and the basic concept is that um culturally speaking the expectation is that men get into politics easily because there's the understanding that the wife will just pick everything up yeah that they don't that um the the wife will just do everything and no one asks them oh you know where where are your kids you know who's looking after them right now whereas female politicians get the complete opposite the always expectation is why aren't you looking after your children right now yeah so yes jacinda ardern is doing a great job but it she has a good husband. Like it Absolutely, a stay-at-home dad, matter, right? Yeah. And and I, you could, I mean, I completely agree, right? Like, why are they always being asked about? You know, how can you have a family and be a be a um, you know a leader of a country? It's like, why don't you ask the blokes the same question? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's com- it's completely unfair. So I think you know there is it ultimately comes down to individual uh, values, and obviously yeah. for you, your family is really important. Yeah. and that's wonderful, yeah. and obviously your family benefit from that. Yeah. Um, but for I guess for the politicians. Uh, male or female the drive to influence the drive to succeed the drive to um have that kind of power is is great is greater you know so i I guess i i I guess the point i want to make is that it depends on what the kind of person you are if policies were really that important to you you know then maybe it wouldn't maybe wouldn't have mattered as much maybe you would have tried to have both at the same time and see how you went you know and you could you could make an argument to say that by going in politics that's that's a way of expressing love for your family because you're trying to change the world Mm, you're trying to make it better for other people that you care about so Mm. yeah um so for any aspiring ecologists out there the little kids wandering around in rock pools do you have any advice about 
you know, how to get a career in it and things you would have wanted to know when you were younger? I mean, I think if they're already running around in rock pools and in forests, they've already run, they're on their way. Mm. So I think, you know, uh, friends, family uh, and so forth, the best thing they could do is is to foster that. And then obviously once you get to high school, you, you obviously need to be doing things like biology and and math is a big part of, of uh, environmental science now as well. So obviously taking science units, but like in the past, you go and go and talk to your career guidance counselor and so forth about it. But um, you know, I think the main thing is really to remain curious and 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 get out there in, in the environment. And then uh, yeah, getting into university will really take care of itself if you're doing that because you'll naturally gravitate towards those sort of things that you need. Um, to get into those units, so yeah, brilliant. So where can we, uh, where can the public find your work? Uh, you can find me on uh, org is my uh, website. I'm also on Twitter, which is just uanritchie one. Uh, I'm also on Facebook as well. Um, they're sort of main ones, and the conversation. So if you just look for you and Richie on the conversation, I've written I think it's fifty plus articles now about various environmental issues. So yeah, I'm in a few different places. Brilliant. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was great. Um, So I hope you enjoyed what you heard. Make sure you uh, check out our older episodes on the website. Um, And uh, yeah, hopefully you will tune into the next episode. So remember, there are no small jobs, only jobs you haven't discovered yet. (laughs) 